0: Welcome to Series 2 of Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Michael Iannini is a Leadership Strategy and Organisational Management Consultant with PD Academia. Having lived and worked in Asia for the past 23 years, he has great insight into the international education sector, working with various organisations to help them grow and succeed. In this interview, we discuss leadership and the recruitment season in international schools. Well, Michael, welcome uh, to Education Talks, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you, David. Um,
1: now, where where are you joining us from? I am joining from Hong Kong. It's uh, literally just within the last 24 hours, the temperature has dropped close to 15 degrees. So I'm, uh, I'm in my warmer clothes today. It's always
0: a nice time of year, December in Hong Kong. I remember being there, I think, for a conference a few years ago and uh, thought, ah, this is a really good time, much better than visiting uh, in the middle of the year when uh, I think it's the hottest I've ever experienced sometimes being there. Um, So great to have you on the show. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your current role with uh, PD Academia?
1: All right. Uh, PD Academia was and still is an educational consultancy that I began now close to 11 years ago. Um, And I'm actually quite excited to report that at our 10 year mark, we did a strategy session with some new partners that have joined the business since then. And when we reflected on the last 10 years, I was quite amazed about how true we stayed to our mission, which was largely to be working with international schools to help them uh, capacity build their organizational management uh, capacity and capabilities. And what that largely entails is working with leadership across the school, both academic and non-academic, such that they know how to better lead their organization strategically from the middle and even from the ground up.
0: Now, um, you're also. Um, involved in a number of organizations as well. Would you like to share uh, some of those?
1: Yeah, I wear quite a few hats. Uh, PD Academia has always kind of served as my my foundation to which I can house a lot of the various initiatives that I get involved in. Um, But since that time, PD Academia has grown to have a number of other partners that are participating in the business, which has freed me up to focus on roles such as with the Council of International Schools, who I've been affiliated with since 2015. Um, The council has identified me as an expert in the areas of human resources management, professional development, leadership development, and strategic planning, and lastly, governance. So I got quite a few uh, kudos there from them. Um, I'm also uh, working with ACAMIS, the Association for China and Mongolia International Schools, as their leadership facilitator and PD coordinator. Uh, And so through them, I develop a lot of workshops and events for a variety of staff, both in English and in Mandarin Chinese. Uh, And then lastly, I've taken a role with Search Associates, where I am their human resource management advisor for China, helping their member schools improve their recruitment, induction and retention practices.
0: So you're very uh, well connected and influential. Can you take us back a bit, though, and Tell us uh, about your career
1: pathway and and what brought you to where you are today. I was originally an English teacher back in '99 in Beijing, China. And when I reflect on my journey, it was largely influenced probably by the school I joined. Uh, back then, I decided to join one of the more prestigious schools in Beijing. Um, you know, the the little sort of homeschooling schools, uh, such as the Western Academy of Beijing or the International School of Beijing, were literally like housed in a hotel conference room area or a warehouse. And you know, the, these ones weren't even on the map. Um, so I opted to go into a more prestigious uh, school and had a horrible experience, uh, but met a lot of great friends that were at WAB and ISB in those days. And now look at those schools, what they've grown to become. Um, but interestingly enough, because of the experience I had, it's, it's led to where I am today, uh, which was, you know, uh, that school I went to work at. I largely did not enjoy my experience. Um, I left. I went into uh, IT, actually, because I didn't want to leave Beijing. Beijing, by this point, had already been awarded the, the Olympics and everything was growing so fast there. So many opportunities were to be had. So I entered into the corporate world, uh, doing business development, uh, found myself starting up my own company, uh, working in systems integration, which led to me finding or founding a company in India for security systems integration. Um, but when I left for India, I'd actually met my now wife uh, in Beijing. And you know, throughout that whole period, we were separated. And I knew I always wanted to get back to be with her. Um, And so when I exited from the security systems business in India, uh, you know, where I worked with large multinational companies, uh, banks, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, loads of different companies there, um, I, you know, I struggled to think, well, what am I going to do? Well, fortunately, a very good friend of mine that I I played football or for Americans such as myself, uh, soccer uh, with in Beijing. Um, he was one of the founders of Delage College. And he said, well, look, if you're going to be back here and, you know, knowing what you know about schools and and also what you've learned while outside of schools, uh, you could probably help us with some challenges we have with our staff. Um, and the challenges were largely around just skill building, because a lot of the training that was out there for staff was really from the corporate perspective and, and didn't really attend to the needs of those within a school environment. So uh, and what he was really encouraging me to do was to take a look a different look at leadership as opposed to that more pedagogical approach that schools typically had from the principal training center and and all these other various resources that international schools would rely on. Um, So basically my journey in education began again in 2010 um, and, you know, 2012 is when Acamas invited me to be their leadership facilitator, 2015 with the Council of International Schools and, and, and so forth to where I'm at today. Well, Michael, today
0: I want to talk about two things, uh, leadership and recruitment. So I want to start off with
1: a very simple question on leadership. What makes a good leader? So I thought I, I always had a a good answer for this one. Um, but recently at the Coast conference, I was sitting down at a table and having a, a drink with Kendall Zoller. Um, I believe his was non-alcoholic, so I don't want to insinuate that he was drinking. Um, I'm pretty sure I had a beer. But in that question, you know, he, he kind of cheekily in, in front of some other guests kind of turned to me and said, you know, define leadership. And I kind of paused and I just, you know, I, I immediately turned to you know, this this sort of idea that, you know, your leadership is is getting people to do stuff. Um, And so therefore a leader, and I always kind of gravitated towards, there's um, a study by Google called Project Aristotle. And in Project Aristotle, Google wanted to understand what made an effective team. Well, to understand what makes an effective team and how to lead that team, you needed to have a good working definition of what a team is and what a leader is. Um, So in this particular case, they distinguish between working groups and teams. And therefore, the team leader, if you're going to lead a team, had to be somebody that was able to uh, get a group of individuals working interdependently towards some shared purpose. And, you know, when Kendall uh, challenged me there, I I had a really hard time trying to, to differentiate between leadership and leader in this particular case, because Ultimately, what we agreed on in the end of that conversation, what he introduced to me was that ultimately leadership is getting people to move in that direction towards achieving something. But now a leader, what a leader does is they have to use a variety of tools and and resources and means to get that done. So it's the effectiveness of that leader to be able to to engage in that form of leadership um, that I find particularly amazing so when we talk about what good leaders are they're able to operate in a variety of different circumstances with a variety of different types of people with different needs and they're able to harness the energies and the strengths of those people such that they're working towards some shared purpose Uh, so that would be my my long answer to the short question so an individual who wants to become a better leader themselves how do they go about doing that? So where I'm at in my own journey as a facilitator uh, and leadership developer is really primarily focused on creating opportunities for people to experience leadership. Because it's through experience that I believe they develop the most effectively. Now, what's that's based on is a, a model called the 70-20-10 model. Uh, it was it originated from the Center for Creative Leadership uh, in the late 80s, and it was based on a study of 200 executives, uh, you know, global executives uh, based on their experience of how they got to where they were and what contributed to their success. Now, the 70-20-10 model is, is based on the data that was uh, retrieved from those surveys, and it suggested 70 percent of all of those executives um Uh, What contributed to their success was experience, the work that they did, the projects that they were part of, um, time and place. Uh, 20% of what contributed to their leadership uh, journey and to becoming effective leaders was the people they worked with. Uh, So the networking, um, those that they not only were uh, learning from, but also that were helping them in terms of realizing whatever goals or outcomes they were working towards. And then they only actually attributed 10% of their development and success to actual formal learning, worksheet, workshops, conferences, reading. It's
0: fascinating. Um, I wonder in your experience, what are the the sort of key factors that contribute to the success of a high performing school? Like how important is that
1: um, quality of, I guess, the leadership of the school? Well, I would, I'd have to say one of the most important, important things to keep in mind of of the schools that I I really admire. And I'm not going to name any of them, but there there are a few schools that I I highly admire. Um, It's they create opportunities for people to lead in the absence of having a title. They constantly work at creating opportunities for educators and non-educators alike to be empowered to tackle initiatives that really develop the school. And they don't just assign these initiatives or, you know, tell them that, you know, yeah, go for it, develop yourself. Here's your sandbox, you know, have fun. Um, they're very purposeful about it. They not only take time to understand how people want to develop, but they align their development with the needs of the school. And then they apportion resources based on what the development needs are. So the people within that culture, within that school, not only do they get to work on projects that they're passionate about, but those projects also actually are aligned with and contribute to the overall development of the school. Uh, And, you know, there's only, I mean, when you think about, I'm just going to say from my perspective, the number of schools that I'm in communication with and the number of schools that I actually work with in the form of people coming to my workshops or that I'm actively going to those schools and provisioning uh, services to, um, they're, they're in the hundreds. Uh, low hundreds. I, I'm not I don't want to <laughs> mislead anybody. But I would say there's less than 10 schools that actually do that. Well,
0: it's mm, fascinating. On a um, very small level, I can think of back in the days when I was in public schools in New South Wales, very and I worked in a number of schools there. And it was always the same at the start of the year. There was sort of operational opportunities so you know who wants to run the swimming carnival the athletics carnival the school photos that all of those operational aspects but i i've often reflected on that being a great opportunity particularly for young teachers who would you know put their hand up and there's no stipends as well um, their name goes next to that it's there in the staff room they're the person who is liaising with either assistant principal or principal to make sure it all runs Um, But those opportunities and that whole everybody sort of buying in to make something work is a nice foundation, a nice way to sort of kick the year off and for everyone to know what's going on for the rest of the year. I wonder how important as well those small things are, just getting those small buy opportunities for people to buy in.
1: So when I reflect on like, The different types of events that schools are engaged in and the uh, extracurricular activities, you know, the after school activities that uh, teachers are expected to lead. Um, There's there's two thoughts to this. One is where if teachers are getting to participate in activities that they're passionate about um, and where they're able to really contribute their best in terms of um, their thoughts and their energy and their passion, uh, the school really gets to benefit from it. And there is no shortage of those types of activities within a school. Uh, International schools are phenomenally busy places because they create so many of these opportunities. But there's a downside to it, too, because they create a lot of these activities to try to attend to the needs and interests of a very diverse stakeholder group. Um, So often what happens is a lot of these tasks are just delegated out. Um, and expected for staff to actually contribute to and lead or, or you know, to see through. Um, now, the result of that is they often need to reward staff with stipends and other types of uh, extrinsic uh, motivations, um, which, you know, is unfortunate because research will show that if we want to develop people and we want to see higher perf- levels of performance and we want to see these activities really taken to a whole nother level. Well, if people are being extrinsically motivated, they're not gonna bring their best. They need to be intrinsically motivated as well. Um, So that is a downside. And I would say that latter uh, example that I gave is probably the most common in international schools. Um, One thing that contributes to a, unfortunately not great leadership candidates within schools is a lot of the roles that might open up, a lot of the, the leadership roles that might open up in a school that are formal leadership roles, generally get internal candidates that have done a lot of these activities. So they've done a lot of stuff. They've ticked the boxes on everything that they've participated in. They've, they've led in events. Um, you know, they've gone out and done presentations for parents. They've demonstrated that they can do stuff, but they didn't demonstrate they could lead on those activities. Now, let's come back to the original definition uh, that you and I, or that I'd shared with you at the beginning, uh, in the sense of if they would have led in those activities, they would have gotten this group of diverse stakeholders working interdependently towards achieving some shared purpose. Um, Now, what schools need to realize is that if they're going to open up leadership roles internally, Have they given their staff opportunities to demonstrate that in all these activities they've had that they've actually led something in them? Um, And I would say the most part, no. And it's unfortunate because that becomes the breeding ground for great leadership.
0: So that brings us to, I think, sort of this next question, what is the responsibility of schools in developing leaders? Like how, how vital is it that schools are doing this?
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, in terms of their responsibility, they have to see it in the sense of Do they want to continue to hire leaders from outside of the school, Um, you know, and when they do actually hire internally, are the leaders that they're hiring internally, are they going to be able to lead, uh, you know, along the lines of that definition of getting a diverse group of people working interdependently to achieve some shared purpose? Because if they don't and all they've ever done has been a taskmaster, well, what they're doing is they're not leading a team. The other side of that Project Aristotle study was that, you know, there were teams and then there were work groups and work groups didn't have leaders. They had supervisors. And, you know, you and I have worked in schools. Are we more likely to stay at a school that we're being led at or where we're being supervised? Um, You know, being supervised doesn't really inspire greatness. What it does is it gets work done, and if all we're doing is feeling like we're ticking boxes and getting work done, now you have a retention issue. Um, Not only are we not developing leaders, but we're losing potentially good people as well, Uh, or good people that could make great leaders if they're given the chance. So what's the school's responsibility? Well, do you want to continue having 10 to 20 percent turnover year in and year out? Do you want to continue to have to look outside for great leaders that don't know your community? and you know, do things the way you do them. Um, but if you want to improve retention and you want to develop leaders that are familiar with your community, then you have a great amount of responsibility to develop those people.
0: I think about a principal that I worked with years ago who took great pride in, in rattling off the number of principles that he says, you know, he had uh, created, you know, that he had um, mentored. Um, how important is mentoring?
1: so what i what i am working on now and i am really passionate about is leadership programs that include mentoring um and you know this is this is like a three-part answer because it builds on what i just contributed in terms of a school's responsibility uh, where the school has to develop the leaders and if we connect it back to 70 2010 experience then 20% being the people we worked with, which is where mentoring resides, and then 10% being the actual formal learning, a school's responsibility is not sending people off to workshops. A school's responsibility is not hiring me to come in and do a workshop or even just a year-long program. Um, As much as that hurts to say, because it does hurt the bottom line sometimes, um, I'd have to say a school's responsibility is taking responsibility by getting directly involved in the leadership development. Now, if they're doing that, The easiest way to do that is through using mentorship programs. Um, Now, case in point would be this. Uh, I almost got out of leadership facilitation altogether. Um, Five, six years ago, I wrote a book. The, The book is entitled Hidden in Plain Sight, Realizing the Full Potential of Middle Leaders. Um, that, culmin- that was basically the culmination of about seven to eight years of my experience of being a leadership facilitator for schools. Um, and I basically just wanted to write that book, get it onto a bookshelf and say, I'm done. I want to move on to something else because I got sick and tired of hearing all the different uh, participants in the class basically telling me, hey, this is great, but do you know who has to be in this room? <laughs> do you know who should be here too? Or, you know, man, I would love to use this, but not at my school, maybe the next school I go to. And, you know, that's so demoralizing. Like, why am I even doing this if people can't even use what I'm teaching them? Um, Four or five years ago, I got the opportunity, though, to start working with schools where I brought in a mentoring program where I said, look, I'm happy to do the middle leadership development for you, but I need five senior leaders. And this is what the senior leaders are going to do. The senior leaders are going to coach or work with the participants over the course of the program just to check in on them. That's all you got to do. Check in on them. What are you learning? How can you use it? How can I help you use it? Very simple. Well, through that program, I learned that the senior leaders needed some training because they didn't really stick to the script very well. Um, a lot of participants reported that even though it was appreciated, it seemed pretty superficial, like a tick the box exercise. Um, and even though the senior leaders in these this case felt that what they were doing was mentoring. Um, It really wasn't. Uh, Mentoring is not just allowing your door to be open and for people to come in with a problem. Mentoring is actually a relationship between you and that staff member. The relationship takes precedent over what the actual formal relationship is because you're invested in that person's development, not just solving their problem. Um, It involves a lot of coaching. But it doesn't have to be coaching so it doesn't have to be so uh process driven or you know strenuous when you think about what good coaching involves so mentoring in this respect when we when we take into account developing leaders is really just about getting experienced people at the school to take responsibility for the development of others in service to the school's development and that's how it connects back to you know what great schools do Um, Not only do they support the development of people directly, but they support it in line with what the school's development needs are, giving them opportunities to have that experience. And that experience really puts them in in touch with a lot of other stakeholders across the school. Um, So in terms of what mentoring is and, and how mentoring can be used, it's really about just fostering more. It's about fostering better relationships amongst colleagues in a school yeah yeah. i think um
0: we could go on much deeper into this but i want to also move on to the topic of uh, recruitment because this is a really big part of uh, international schools Um, and of course we're now reaching the height of the recruitment season in asia Um, i was wondering if you have any advice for school leadership teams as they set off on the recruitment circuit. What are some of the things
1: they can do that can help them in finding the right candidates? Um, in terms of finding the right candidates, and, you know, a lot of my background is based on in, in leadership, and I've helped schools in terms of developing and, and managing their, their head of school recruitment processes, and, and also helping them develop uh, success profiles for what will be effective leaders within their schools. Um, I'll speak from the uh, the perspective of, say, wanting to hire leadership candidates. Um, things that they should be keeping in mind is why don't we have any internal candidates for these roles? What's happened? Why aren't we hiring internally? You, because if we have to hire externally for this role, then we failed to develop that person internally. Um, our, we going to be bringing somebody into an environment where they probably won't be successful because of that as well. We haven't created the enabling environment. So recruitment is also about the environment that people are being recruited into and why this is important because candidates have access to a wealth of information these days. A lot of them know probably more about your school than you do just from people that are at the school uh, or what they're reading about the school, whether it be fair or unfair. So knowing the environment that these candidates are going to be working in is incredibly important. And reflecting on why weren't we able to develop that person internally, I think, says a lot in terms of why they're being hired externally. Um, And to that point, if we are bringing somebody in externally, can they help us create that environment? Uh, What type of culture do we want them to contribute to? Uh, let's not just hire them based on their credentials and who they are as an educator. We need to pay even more attention to who they are as a person because where schools are getting really impacted at the bottom line is retention. Uh, Turnover is killing schools. Um, A lot of the work I do is based in mainland China. They have an incredibly shrinking candidate pool. And as that pool gets smaller, the quality of the teachers get worse. So one lesson that I think is true for all schools and that I'm actually consulting a lot of schools in China on is that we can't just be hiring to fill positions. We need to be hiring for fit and fit means we need to be hiring people that are appropriate to our culture. Um, The only way we're going to know if they're appropriate to our culture is we need to understand what that culture is. We need to go out and we need to survey Uh, people that succeed in our culture, and then create a candidate profile that really guides the process. Um, We also need to think about what we need as a school, where we need to develop, and how this person is going to contribute to that. Um, If you do not find that person out in the market, then you need to look for alternatives. And in looking for alternatives, you have to be willing to maybe turn away the candidates that are great on paper and check all of the, you know, educational criteria boxes and start looking more at a person that you can develop.
0: What about uh, for the job seekers themselves? Are there any sort of common mistakes that people can try to avoid through both you know, their search, their application, interview? Any advice?
1: Yeah. So, you know, what's what's good for the goose is, is also good for the gander. And I, as, as I said for... Um, the schools is that candidates have a lot of information out there. They have access to a lot of information. And so if you're a candidate that doesn't feel like they have enough information about the school, that's on you. You need to get out there and you need to find it. You need to connect with people in those schools. There, everybody in a school is somehow online, either through Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn. A simple search will put you into contact with people to the point where you can say, hey, I'm considering working at your school. Um, or applying to work at your school. Um, you know, if you know you have a little time, I'd, I'd appreciate perhaps even reaching out to you and, and finding out a little bit about your school. Um, and why is this important? Because we're dealing with international education. You know, when we go out seeking jobs at schools, we're not talking about something in our backyard. We're talking about working in a different country, in a different culture. If we have a family, you know, what we're moving our family to, we can't afford to make a mistake there. So we need to go out and know more about that environment for the school that we want to work in. Um, so I would say for the candidates, you need to go out and get more information about that school and you need to look for, let's come back to this idea of is that school developing people? Are they going to develop you? Are they going to give you opportunities for you to realize your full potential and capacity um, and capabilities? Uh, and you can do that either one by doing your own research or if you get into the interview, the types of questions you ask should be very revealing. And actually, you know, David, you, you yourself asked a really good question as we were preparing for this interview. You know, if you wouldn't mind sharing that, I think the audience would probably benefit the most about the type of question they need to leave the first interview with.
0: Yeah, probably ask, you know, like, why are you interested in hiring me? Um, and that might be quite telling. Um, I've often wondered, you know, what would the response be if it if it either surprised you in a good way or a bad way? You know, like if you were thinking, is that all you're interested in? Or, wow, I didn't even realise I was that valuable. It might actually be a really good way to know whether you are going to fit at that school. Um, I wanted to also ask you, you've sort of touched on this. So schools that aren't finding the people they're looking for, you know, then what? You mentioned like, you know, looking at
1: alternative methods. What? What might that involve? Interestingly, a number of um, leadership, like uh, workshop participants, a number of people that are in my mentoring programs, uh, they didn't originally come from schools of education. They didn't graduate with an education degree. Um, They went out and got their PGC, you know, much later in their life and career. Um, There was a lot of reasons for why they gravitated towards education. Uh, So what... What I would encourage schools to do is start looking at the dispositions and skills outside of the classroom that you can be developing. Because um, when it comes to what's happening in the classroom, a lot of that can be taught, obviously, in terms of classroom management, pedagogical approaches, curriculum. Um, and you can have a lot of ownership over that in terms of how you want it done instead of trying to, you know. Recreate the wheel for somebody entering into your school that may not be used to your system or processes. Um, But to do that, you need to have a long view. You need to look about. Hey, if we're bringing in people as interns or or trainee teachers or even new teachers, you know, do we have the capacity and and capability to develop them? Now, the trade off is because you're getting less experienced teachers. um, You know, you're going to be they're going to be lower on the pay scale. They're going to be more hungry to learn. Uh, retention will be much higher if you can deliver on that promise of developing uh, their skill. You're going to be saving inordinate amounts on recruitment. Uh, So I would say go further abroad and start taking a look at the skills and dispositions that contribute to great teaching because they're not isolated to just people that have graduated with degrees in education.
0: I wonder what sort of other opportunities that affords as well. So, um, you know, having... More local hires mixed in a school that perhaps was traditionally um, all overseas teachers could actually be a better way for those overseas teachers to integrate into the you know, the lifestyle of living there, making friends who are actually from that country. Um, do you think that's a potential
1: upside? I mean, there's there's so many there's so many key attributes or characteristics of a good candidate that schools might overlook, that definitely is one. Um, but, you know, I, I, here I have a question for you. Let's take the let's take a look at the schools in China that have this incredibly shrinking pool of candidates. And let's be honest, there's not going to be a lot of people that are actively pursuing China right now just because of what the news is saying. And to some regard, I would say the news is uh, the Western news is overplaying a lot of what's happening there. Um, China is about one year behind the West in terms of its ap- epidemic. If, you know, let's, let's take into account Omicron, where was the West with Omicron last year at this time? You know, there was a huge wave that swept through the Europe. There was a huge wave that swept through the US. Then it hit Hong Kong, um, you know, and I, you know, that's where I live. And it was just kind of like, guys, we already saw those waves coming. How come we weren't prepared for it? Uh, yeah. China's in the same position. They just, you know, unfortunately are gonna have to ride this current wave but that wave should take them into a much more positive place next year. Um, yes. But until it does, a lot of people are judging them based on what they hear, whether it be mm-hmm. fair or unfair. So in that respect, it's an incredibly shrinking pool. Now, what I'm telling schools in China is that, number one, you can't fight what's being you know, told outside. You know, you're not you're not a credible source to uh, contradict CNN or BBC, you know, no matter no matter what they're saying. Um, But what you can do is you can really talk about uh, how your community is thriving during this time and talk about that picture, about how it's addressing these challenges and and what people are getting from it and create stories that are true um, about how people are doing well there um through these times of adversity because others have already gone through it and also when we take a look at what these waves are like we know we're at it right now where you know china's just at the at the beginning this wave is just starting to form um schools just need to be honest about that in respect to what's happening but we also have to appreciate that these waves are long um and it's going to influence next year's recruitment, so we have to perhaps look at more local hires. And here's a question for you, David: Is why would an international school in China not think about hiring a very proficient um, local teacher, say for a subject such as humanities or language? You know, whether it be Spanish, um, there there is a lot of Chinese Spanish speakers in China. Um, you know, but you know, some of these types of topics, so like what what what's the biggest fear i guess they
0: would worry about the impact they might, that might have on you know the long term decision making of teachers staying or being attracted to come to that school um and perhaps also just the um the credibility in terms of being an international school for the parents who are choosing who are wanting that um those international teachers yeah
1: So unfortunately, a lot of these schools, they're just relying on a model for international education that relies on foreigners. But let's be honest. I mean, are Chinese people, are they incapable of being international? No, there's like 1.3 billion, of which there's hundreds of millions across the globe. Um, So we shouldn't be judging based on their their passports. We need to be judging on their mindset. And internationalism is a mindset. It's not a passport. It's not the color of the eyes, the hair or the skin. Um, So in that respect, schools have to be a little bit more brave and they need to really educate their communities better, as well as prospective candidates coming into that community that, hey, we are an internationally minded community. One of the things I'm really proud about with the Council of International Schools is that they're accrediting schools based on their interculturalism. Michael, I want
0: to uh, ask you about something that you're working on now that you're really excited about.
1: So this pandemic if it's taught me anything uh it's that i can't get face to face with all the people that i want to influence and work with and and develop and grow um i've had to do it through virtual means but for the work i do at the level i do there there still needs to be some in-person component um for me to meaningfully affect change uh but there's also a lot of professional development out there that doesn't need to be in person, that doesn't need to be at conferences. In fact, when we think about some of the most meaningful learning that happens at conferences, it's the ability, ability to connect. Now, part of that is social. It is about being in person because the body language. Um, it's in terms of just being able to interpersonally uh, connect with one, of you, one another in an in-person setting. But in the absence of those types of opportunities, Uh, virtual suffices and virtual can actually be more effective because it gives us the opportunity to continuously learn. So my passion project right now is actually peer learning networks. And this is something that I'm developing with PD Academia uh, for ACAMIS, the Association of China and Mongolia International Schools. What we want to do is we want to create opportunities for educators that aren't typically served by conferences, that don't get to benefit from PTCs or or ECIS or or any of the other common workshops that typically require a critical mass of participants in a particular role so that they can be profitable. Um, To service and provision quality learning, it shouldn't require a service provider to make a profit. Uh, So what we want to do is democratize and make professional learning more equitable. And what we've learned from the pandemic is that a lot of educators were able to effectively do this in Facebook and LinkedIn and and Twitter um, in a number of places. But what happens within these networks is it's very difficult to curate or archive key learning that others can benefit later on. Um, So you might have a community, but that community is very in the moment, what's happening in that moment and how people get supported in that moment, and then it's gone and you don't get to retrieve it as easily. Um, So what we're doing at PD Academia is creating peer learning networks to where we can curate that key learning, archive it, but also be able to provide a platform where there is continuous learning uh, that involves in-person meetings, live meetings, virtual meetings. Uh, We create an ecosystem for people that are able to learn um, based on what their pace is and the manner in which they are most comfortable learning. But more importantly, and you know what's really, uh, I would have to say, particularly important to me is that they find people that they're comfortable learning with, that they can trust, and they're going to value the inputs of those. Schools rely a lot on professional learning communities, but you and I know, David, that a professional learning community in a school um, isn't always the most effective place for most educators to develop because it's contrived. You know, it's it's what Andy Hargreaves calls this contrived collegiality. Your professional learning community has to meet on Monday afternoons and you're going to meet with these people and you're going to talk about this topic. Um, now, schools that think they fix that by saying, hey, you know, we'll let you choose, you know, uh, one of three topics or you can come up with your own topic. It just has to align with our school's strategic development and the people you're going to meet with. You know, everybody can kind of opt into one, but you have to opt into one. They don't allow mm-hmm. people not to opt into one. So now you're bringing people into a learning environment that don't necessarily want to learn. And that actually detracts from the learning environment. And it actually dissuades people from wanting to invest themselves further. So the types of peer learning networks that we're really focused on are people that are entering into these platforms, very knowledgeable and aware of what they're they're getting and what they're seeking, and trying to create relationships such that they can take the learning deeper outside of the platform and hopefully be able to capture some key learnings that we can curate, put back into the platform for others to learn. Um, And we can do this all virtually at an incredibly low cost, which has been probably, you know, for me, for being Acamas's leadership facilitator and PD coordinator has always been one of the greatest challenges. How do I create meaningful and cost-effective learning for teaching assistants such that it's only Seventy-five U.S. dollars for a whole year. They're getting live meetings. They're getting curated resources. They they get to interact with peers at different schools. Um, how do we create meaningful learning experiences for school nurses or PD coordinators, vice principals? Um, you know that might be one of the few or only people in that role at a school. Who are they going to collaborate with meaningfully? Um, so the cool thing is now. There is no excuse not to connect with people at different schools. The problem for them is identifying who those people are and getting connected. And, you know, through what I've been working on for the last 10 years is I have access to a lot of very large networks that I can connect people in now. And um, I mean, just as you can tell, <laughs> this is what's really, you know, it's got me going.
0: That's fantastic, great opportunities ahead. Now, Michael, if people want to engage your services or they uh, just want to reach
1: out and connect with you, how can they do that? I would recommend them to go to middleleader.com, M-I-D-D-L-E-L-E-A-D-E-R.com, middleleader.com. And from that, you can find more about my book, uh, things that I commonly write on about leadership. Um, Obviously there's direct access to me through email, Um, as well as, you know, you can look for me on Twitter, uh, PDAcademia, P-D-A-C-A-D-E-M-I-A, that's my handle, um, or LinkedIn, uh, you know, just search for Michael Ianini on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. And we'll include all those in the description. And Michael, look, it's been fantastic uh, to have you on the program, and I hope uh, in the future can uh, catch up again. Thanks for being on Education Talks.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, David.
0: Education Talks is an EdEvents production for the EdEvents community. You can keep up to date with the development of the community by registering on the website at ed.events.